I'm Kato Kalen and you're listening to The Society Show. So don't go. Don't go. Listen to the show. Society Show. This is William Hong and you're listening to The Society Show. Do you believe in society flaws? Even more surprising than this, Michael Jordan's Hitler mustache. Wow, what does that mean? All right, so my name is Christian. I am joined by a special guest, Matt, uh, from the blog Ted Bain, spelled T-H-T-E-H-B-E-N.com, you know, like um, the, that kind of... Anyway, uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Pressure Cooker. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, nice to have you on. Um, I'm sorry to be to be completely honest. I was a little late for this, but I wanted to touch on it on the show because um, I had I had something that really affected me. Um, do you mind if I uh, go into this? By all means. <laughs> okay, so basically, I went to a DVD store in town called Al's, and they were selling uh, an old Pokemon, Pokemon Platinum, for $170. And I was like, oh, I have four Pokemon games at home. I'm going to try to sell these on eBay. And I sold them, but... Uh, and I thought I updated my PayPal account, but then once it goes to pay out, it was actually depositing into an account that had been hacked. So, sadly, yeah, I and PayPal wouldn't do anything about it. I called them and they were basically like, uh, yeah, we don't really believe you were hacked. <laughs> um <laughs> They didn't actually say that, but that's what they meant. And um, anyway, so I lost out on almost all of the money. Like, I got like f- 500 plus bucks for four games. Thankfully, one of the person was like, oh, I can do a refund if you want your money back. So I did that. And then I traded, just ended up trading in the game where I originally saw that they were selling for a bunch. But uh, yeah, that really sucks losing all that money. But uh, the good thing is... I I didn't lose all of it, but... That's quite an adventure. Yeah, and I I want to put that out there in case anyone trusts PayPal in the future, don't do it. I did want to touch on your blog real quick, so it's tebbin, like I said, .com. Uh, Do you want to give a, a little overview of what your blog's about? Sure. So Tabend.com is just sort of a special interest blog, but we're not really sure what that special interest is. Uh, it's uh, named after our editor, Ben, and uh, we were writers together on another website, and we just kind of dusted off his old website once we started collaborating together and have just gone from there. We, we started doing it like sort of as a dirty book blog reviewing uh, erotica and things like that and it's kind of morphed into doing soda reviews, personal uh, experience articles, interviews uh, some sports stuff it's uh, taken on quite a varied approach in the last couple years 
Yeah, so I have looked through your blog a bit. Uh, one thing that I've noticed that is a feature caught my eye, at least, because um, it's something I like, is you do reviews for Mountain Dew. And, I mean, I, I saw that you reviewed Voodoo. I had that one. That was pretty good. But the one that you reviewed most recently, the Major Millen, I gotta be honest, I looked everywhere for that. I've still never seen it. I'm assuming it's discontinued continued by now but i never once saw that really that's uh, maybe on the west coast it was lessened but it was the penetration was total on the east coast um every almost every convenience store uh, grocery store had them uh there was a, a major melon and a major melon zero and I, I still see them on shelves whether they're still manufacturing it i don't know but uh yeah it, they swarmed us with it and i didn't particularly like it uh, ben liked it much more than I did. It, it tasted a lot like a bad, melted-down watermelon Jolly Rancher. Yeah, I think I would like that. I mean, I am a big Millen fan, but so is it more cantaloupe, more honeydew? Like, what kind of Millen? Definitely watermelon, but in the in the candy watermelon fashion, less than the actual fruit. Okay, yeah. I mean, I will occasionally drink the watermelon-flavored Red Bulls. I really like those. Mm -hmm. Red Bull gives you wings. Do get your hands on one. I think you'd like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll keep my eyes open. And um, you also, I mean, I'm sorry to focus on your drink reviews, but that is w what I'm interested in. You also reviewed Coca-Cola with coffee. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I kind of want to try it. It's pretty good, actually, if, you know, you have to understand you're getting carbonation with your coffee. That's going to set some people off. Um, and it's not that it's a surprisingly low amount of caffeine. I think it's only like 60 milligrams, which is way less than a cup of coffee and not even that much more than a standard can of Coca-Cola. Um, so it's really it tastes like you're drinking a Coke that was in a poorly washed out coffee cup. And that can be a good thing if that's something you'd be interested <laughs> in. But it's all... It's also, you know, it leaves you wanting a little bit more. Um, and it smells, which uh, Jen Coulter, one of our writers, discovered, uh, it smells like a meat marinade. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I got the impression from your review that it, it was more kind of like it tasted like coca-cola but some of the flavors were like coffee it didn't actually taste like coffee right like maybe if you ran the coke through a keurig or something like that <laughs> yes like a, a do a pour over with a coke just Perfect. boil the coke pour it over <laughs> yeah we're actually gonna be working a little bit more with that uh going off the meat marinade idea i actually made some beef jerky that was marinated in the coke coffee um, <laughs> yes so we'll have a little write-up on that in the near future <laughs> yeah that sounds good that's an awfully hot coffee pot should i drop it on donald trump probably not but that's all i got till i come up with a solid another thing i wanted to talk about uh before we uh kind of got more into the, like the main topic i guess is um i we didn't really talk about this ahead of time but i'm assuming you've been following it the allegations of against matt gates um potentially being a pedophile or i'll say allegedly rather than potentially uh allegedly being a pedophile and a sex trafficker um so yeah have you been following that at all hey, well, do you hear about this 
a little bit. I don't. I won't say I have all the details as to what's come out. I mean, I've I've certainly been a spectator to the Matt Gates saga of his. What this is his third uh, congressional term we're in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, so I can't say I know a lot about it either, but I, I do want to bring out some of the details. So what he's actually under investigation for from my impression is paying for flights and hotel rooms for a 17 year old girl the funny thing about well it's not none none of this is funny but the interesting thing about it is he never really denies that his denial is entirely like oh i've never traveled with her oh i've never done this or that like kind of specific i never traveled with her i just sent for her (laughs) yeah exactly i got a bad feeling about this and um i've also talked on this podcast before about what legally constitutes sex trafficking and how conservatives will kind of they think every instance of sex trafficking is like a demonic globalist snatching up kids or something but uh this is an example of actual sex trafficking trafficking and it's more i guess like everyday form and yeah definitely yeah yeah and it seems like the conservative reaction is to just basically be like well that's not what sex trafficking is but that's also entirely based in um, them already having preconceived mo- notions about what sex trafficking right, is. Right, this didn't take place in a pizza parlor. How could it possibly be sex trafficking? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, and another thing, I mean, this goes back, but uh, I guess people kind of were speculating on his weird relationship with underage people um, when he brought up his adult so-called adopted teenager son nestor um do you know much about this or remember when that was going around no i'll be honest this is the first i've heard of uh of old nestor what uh oh interesting yeah so this is it was very strange so uh, this was back in june 2020 i want to say there was this a congressman named cedric richmond he was a black he's a black congressman and he was talking about some law, I don't even know, about how it would be, help black kids with police or something. I don't really know, but he's like, I have black kids, so I know not all of you have black kids, so you don't know. And Matt Gates chimes in and is like, excuse me, sir, I have a Latino son named Nestor. How dare you? Um, and I will give you the benefit of the doubt that it is an unconscious bias that I'm hearing. Because at worst, it's conscious bias. And that, I would hate to assume from any of the people on the other side. Will the gentleman yield? Sure. I appreciate your passion. Are you suggesting that you're certain that none of us have non-white children? Be- because you, you reflected on your black son and you said none of us could understand. Matt, Matt, stop. I'm not about to get sidetracked about the color of our children. We're talking no, about black kids. I reclaim my time. You said that I reclaimed my time. I know. You want the discussion? I know that gentlemen, gentlemen reclaimed his time. I said I claim reclaimed my time. I already know that there are people on the other side that have uh, black grandchildren. It is not about the color of your kids. It is about black males, black people in the streets that are getting killed. And if one of them happens to be your kid, I'm concerned about him too. And clearly I'm more concerned about him than you are. 
that so let's be clear you're, about you're that. Claiming, so you're claiming you're I more am, concerned for my family than I do? Who in the hell the do you gentleman, think you are? The gentleman, if the, the shoe fits. Listen, you don't know how much we care about will families. Suspend, kick dog you should take those words down. I gentleman care will about your family and love your family. The gentleman we, will suspend. It. The gentleman will suspend. The time belongs to the gentleman from Louisiana. Cedric, would you yield? Was, was that a nerve? Yeah, uh, you damn I yield right to the gentleman from Louisiana. <laughs> and people looked into it and there's basically no evidence that he legally adopted Nestor. Uh Nestor still has a birth dad who didn't put him up for adoption and Nestor is actually his ex-girlfriend's little brother. So he's living with a guy he's tenuously connected to much younger, and he calls him his son. It's just very strange to me. That is strange. Now, without all of the other sexual allegations, I would just, to play devil's advocate, I would perhaps think it's more of a, uh, you know, keeping someone in a house to you like to play the race card as he was trying to do there is to say, oh, well, <laughs> yes. you know, I, I, have, I have a Latino son, so shut up. But now, certainly with this new stuff the actual the sexual connotations could certainly be added to that quite easily yeah and like i don't i don't mean to imply that i think um matt gates is um sexually abusing nestor in any way like i just don't know but it is just kind of a bizarre way to relate to younger people i guess yeah it it the first person i thought of went now, getting the Nestor information for the first time after all this is I think of Ted Nugent and uh, his adopted daughter slash wife. Oh, yeah. And he notoriously has a bunch of songs that are just straight up like, I'm attracted to kids, basically. <laughs> So it's sort of the in the R. Kelly file of how did we not see this coming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, have you been seeing any of the old tweets from him that people have uncovered that uh, look very dubious in retrospect? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm afraid to ask, though. What In what <laughs> way were they uh, creepy? Well, the two I saw going around is there's one where he um, quote tweeted the Albanian pop singer B.B. Rexa and B.B. Rexa said, there's no age that you can't be sexy. And uh, he quote tweeted that and added, I say we change Florida's welcome signs to this. Oh, that's perfect. God, I love it. God, it's, it's yeah. so horrible. I want to like it. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other one I saw going around, and this one is a little more alarming just because there's actual photos of high school girls, but it's like oh, a, a photo of him at a high school, like at a lunch table with a bunch of girls. I, I forget what it says, but just like hanging out with cool high schoolers or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like about these high school girls. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so, I mean, I will be completely transparent to the listener. We are recording this a few days before it comes out. So I'm assuming there will be more details to the story that uh, come out. It seems like a big deal. Sure, he could be in the big house by the time this goes live. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that party last night was awfully crazy. I wish we taped it. The main thing I kind of wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, and what I imagine will take up a lot of the episode is, you know, I've followed you on Twitter for a bit and I think you're the only person I follow who follows NASCAR. Um, you know, personally, I can't really see myself being entertained by Ma- NASCAR and sure. um a big part of that, honestly, is um, very pathological. Like, I have car anxiety, and the idea of watching cars go fast, like, stresses me out. But uh, I am intrigued by everything surrounding NASCAR. So, uh, I guess to start, can you give a general overview of what NASCAR is like, what you like about it, just generally? Sure. Um, so, NASCAR, obviously, is... You know, a lot of the appreciation for most fans will come from it being a sport. Um, you know, there's a lot of crossover between football, hockey, and basketball and baseball fans that also happen to like NASCAR. But uh, there's plenty that don't because you know I very much enjoy sports on a you know, kind of a basic American boy level. Uh, but racing is, in my personal story, has always been. A lifestyle situation. Yeah, you know, I, I was kind of born into it. My grandfather, who just could not stand any kind of sport, but racing was what he liked. That was his main you know, amusement: was going to races and having. You know, we had some race car drivers in our family, and that kind of got pa- passed down to me. So before I even really knew what a sport was, uh, I knew about racing. It's my earliest memories have to do with that. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm kind of a gearhead too. I, I love cars i don't know if that which part of that came first but having an appreciation for you know the kind of the man and machine element uh you know certainly you know cultivates being a race fan um but to keep it going now it, it's it's only gotten more for me than i've gotten less appreciation for regular sports but the racing love has actually gotten a lot stronger i'm not entirely sure why that is but a lot of it has to do with the characters that are involved in it People that drive the race cars, work on them, um, write about them. It's They're all a little bit different than the people that would be involved in other sports. I just have a fascination about them because we get so much access to them. Uh, kind of feel as a fan that you're part of the drama. That's not exactly true, but you kind of feel it. And it's, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's quite amazing to me. So I I guess I kind of I know the answer to the question I'm going to ask but I have to ask it. So the one racing or car based sporting event I went to was like a grave digger type monster truck rally. Sure. Yeah. And um of course, you know, even as a well as a kid I watched wrestling and I was a little privy to like what a work is or not, but even as a kid mm-hmm. I kind of got that it was worked. Um do you think there's any level level of nascar that is uh, worked in any way similar to pro wrestling i would say maybe not so much in the nascar realm um that's very interesting that you brought up monster trucks because monster trucks really did have an identity crisis with that 
Um, we can go well deep into that on another occasion, but they were they were on the same network as pro wrestling for a time, and they had to really work on where what is fake and what's not. They had little sh- you know worked shoot interviews, and there was like a, a person, a little person, a gentleman carrying a big wrench that would go and you know work on one of the trucks during a, a vignette. And you'd think, oh, he's <laughs> sabotaging the truck and stuff like that. So <laughs> yes. in in that form of auto racing, it certainly is. Uh, prevalent uh, as far as the more mainstream racing is concerned i would might be pollyanna of me to say but i don't think in any regards the on-track product um, is worked or fixed or anything like that i will say the stuff that happens after the race of uh, two drivers kind of bump heads on track and they want to have a, a rumble after the race i think a lot of that is worked i think it's it's encouraged a little bit more than it should be, and you know, obviously the cameras know where to be uh, when that situation occurs. So, yeah, there's a very small amount of it that is a lot like pro wrestling. Yeah, from that, it kind of seems like it's worked in the same way that perhaps MMA and boxing is, rather than sure. whereas pro wrestling's more like fully scripted. I mean, not not really each bump, not down to each bump, but like, it, yeah, like MMA, it's more like everything surrounding it is maybe not scripted, but worked. Yeah, it's definitely a show before it gets to the actual fight. And I, I do believe there's a lot of that in, in racing. Yeah. It's all about selling tickets. So. Definitely. And so I also... Uh, I was watching Talladega Nights recently, and <laughs> that led me to look into NASCAR a little bit. And I, what I learned is that following Dale Earnhardt's crash and death, they started modifying the rules in NASCAR, changing the cars, and this seemed to lead to a decrease in viewership. So can you tell me about these modifications? Sure. So, you know... <sighs> Formula One, which is the main kind of worldwide racing, had this too. They had a, a death of a superstar in 1994 when Ayrton Senna passed away. And they made a lot of modifications to the tracks, the cars, and things, and they haven't had a death since. Uh, NASCAR racing had pretty much that exact same situation when Dale Earnhardt passed away. Uh, the first big thing was fixing the interior safety of the vehicle. Uh, the cars were fairly safe and the tracks were fairly safe, at least for the time. But the main thing was when someone would hit the wall, what would happen to their neck? Basically it's called a basal skull fracture, which is what most drivers died of because their head goes too far forward. Just like in a street car. Yeah. It's basically snaps your, snaps your neck. Um, They developed a system. It's called the head and neck restraint system or Hans device that keeps that from happening. Basically when you hit, something head on or hard it keeps everything in line and lets the rest of the safety features like the safety belts and and the roll cages and things like that do their job and keeps keeps the egg as it were you know cradled in the carton um that was you know the thing that needed to be done they needed to improve that they improved the helmets there's new guardrails at every track uh it's just it's if you're kind of a science nerd it's really cool it's called the safer barrier where they have metal and foam Kind of co- it, the, the guardrails allowed to compress during an accident and all, all this stuff that that all kind of happened within the, a couple year time frame. And with that, 
became a different brand of race car driver. Um, it used to be sort of the, the fearless hard ass was championed in racing and Dale Earnhardt, you know, personified that perfectly. Um, someone who would go all out and, you know, didn't really care what would happen. Um, nowadays it's whether this is true or not. A lot of the drivers that are at the forefront of popularity are kind of rich playboys in a way. They're a little softer looking, a little softer speaking. They're a little more polished. They kind of look a little more harmless, I guess is the word for it. And with that, the old guard of fans that were the fans in the eighties and the nineties, somehow got it in their head that because of all this safety, that just means NASCAR isn't as good anymore. And I, I just, I really don't understand that. I think that's a lazy way out of saying, you know, the big, the, the one liner is NASCAR died with Dale. And I just, I don't see that because NASCAR was in a golden age when he died and the golden age didn't really stop just because the cars got safer. Um, there's a number of other reasons why, that occurred there were certain racing quality issues that weren't in regards to safety uh, certain aerodynamic properties sponsorship money dried up the fucking economy went to hell i mean it's mm -hmm. all sorts of things that you don't want to blame on you know the cars are just too safe so i, I don't but uh that that's basically how nascar has been since 2001 is trying to get past how do we balance safety with entertainment and try to keep everybody happy and any day now maybe it'll work yeah so uh that's interesting so they they didn't really change much about how the cars actually drive right or it, was there anything to like the exterior or the engine under the hood that they change not really in regards to safety they've there've been technological innovations with the engines like i don't know how much of a, of a gearhead you are but they don't use carburetors at the highest level anymore. They use fuel injection, but that's not a safety issue. That's more of an efficiency and power thing. So the cars were never really made slower. In fact, the cars got faster after Dale Earnhardt died. Um, they looked different in that they had different aerodynamic things, but that also wasn't in regards to safety. It was in regards to making them faster and sleeker and have more downforce and held to the track. Um, so no, really, as far as, the, the car that was introduced after his death a few years later called the Car of Tomorrow, it was indeed safer, but nothing that any of the on-track product would have been blamed for because the seat was moved a little bit closer to the center. You know, certain extra roll cage components were added and nothing that anybody even would have noticed. Um, it's like I said, it's just way too easy to blame safety and the lack of the death-defying shit is why they don't like nascar anymore yeah because without that knowledge just from looking online i kind of got the impression that they just completely changed everything by the way some people were talking about it yeah i don't, I don't really know where that comes from i mean certain there's no denying it's changed but so is everything else i don't it's just it really it, it really does baffle me how dissatisfied people got when things were made safer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, and it's more to the point of you can leave a sport if you don't like who's competing. I mean, the death of Dale Earnhardt did take one of its biggest stars out of the sport. And 
know, people are going to have that sort of grief about their guy not being there anymore. And if people don't want to admit that's why they left NASCAR, that's certainly possible. Yeah, there was a there was a changing of the guard immediately after he died. Um, whether this would have happened if he was alive or not, I'm not sure. But that same year in 2001, and then in the next few years that followed, a whole bunch of drivers came out of nowhere to be to be eventually become household names. Even his replacement, Kevin Harvick, who took over for that car after he died, was a near immediate success. He won the third race after his death. Um, you know, other people, Jimmy Johnson, Ryan Newman, people like that, they came up right after he died, and it just kind of, there was a definite changing of the guard. So you could blame that. You could look at that scenario and say, yeah, he died. All these people I don't like, you know, I don't like this guy that looks like an accountant. He's a lot different than old Dale, so I'm going to go ahead and say this is why I'm not a fan of yeah, there's one other NASCAR driver I can recall off the top of my head besides Dale Earnhardt and Dale Earnhardt Jr. And um, his name is Casey Kane. Are you familiar with him? Absolutely. Yeah, and he he's a good representation of that because he was you know a damn fine race car driver, but he looks he, he's a cute little guy, and he was especially <laughs> when he came up with I think 2003 or 2004 is when he came up. And he he looked harmless. He was the he was the mom's choice. Uh, was the joke that went around at the time. Um, they even had commercials of him with I think it was a Dodge commercial because that was the sponsor of his car. Where he's just he's getting chased around chased around by these milfy soccer moms who just all wanna <laughs> they all wanna fuck Casey Kane basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I didn't know anything about him, but I'm I grew up in like South King County, south of Seattle, and he's from oh, sure, e- yeah. Enumclaw, which is mm-hmm. like the next town over. You brought up a really good point with that. Is the, the drivers that became famous in that time were not from the hotbed of NASCAR activity. They weren't really Southeastern people anymore. Um, Casey Kane wasn't even the most successful driver that came out of the state of Washington at the time. Um, there was Greg Biffle, who I can't remember his hometown, but he was from the Pacific Northwest as well. And that and California had a lot of drivers. So it was even harder to identify with these little cute boys because they're from you know, the great West where, you know, they've never heard of. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's strange because yeah, from a complete outsider, I just was like, I saw Casey Kane shirts everywhere. And I was like, mm-hmm. either he's super popular or people only wear it. Cause he's from here. It's probably both, but yeah, good combination there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also wanted to ask a little bit about uh, formula one. So I guess, I, the way I understand the difference is Formula One drives with the open wheel cars, like the wheels are kind of to the side, not really street legal. And then NASCAR, at least ostensibly, uses stock cars. Um, so my question is, uh, are the differences really that simple? And also, like, I know NASCAR, it's, they're not really stock cars. Um, so I guess... How does that type of classification work? Sure. So stock car racing, which is NASCAR, it's started off fairly stock in the 1950s when the sport began. Basically, you took a car off the showroom, you kept the windshield, you kept everything, you added a roll cage and maybe one other little safety adjustment, but you drove it exactly that way. 
Um, and as that came down, the cars continued to try to look as stock as possible. Um, and they're even they're really still called stock cars today only because they have the manufacturer backing, you know, having Ford and Chevrolet and Toyota as part of it. You know, they, it looks very little like a Mustang, but they're calling it that. That's what keeps the name stock car around. And yeah, it's got four wheels and an internal combustion engine. And yeah, it's somewhat stock car like in appearance. But Formula One makes no pretensions of being a street vehicle at all. Um, the people that make it might be a company that makes motor cars like Ferrari and things like that. But the cars are formula basically means it's purpose built to be a race car. Um, so yeah. And in formula one, it's open wheel. Uh, there's so many different scientific things going and technological things going on that are different. Um, the engine is a uh, turbo driven, uh, v6 whereas this in nascar it's a it's a classic v8 fuel injection engine um and there's all these things that make give it extra power because f1 cars are faster but with a smaller engine but because they have all this hybrid technology of uh like a system that uses the friction that was generated from the brakes to turn that into kinetic energy and power the engine more with that uh they have little sensors that go off that some cars while they're racing they can up a, basically the the back end of the wing can open up to make the car have less downforce and then be faster to try to you know catch them up there's all sorts of science project things that have nothing to do with a street car that they you know allow in just to be you know basically to make f1 the the technological paramount of of motorsport basically if it's in f1 this is this is how far we can go as of today this is as far as technology will take us that may not be exactly true, but that's sort of what they sell you when you watch a race. Whereas NASCAR is, they still try to use the phrase, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. It's like, Oh, you see Kyle Busch <laughs> driving a Toyota, whatever you go out and buy one. You'll be just like Kyle Busch. So there's still that definite bullshit in America where <laughs> they try to sell you that. Yeah. So I, I do have a couple of questions about formula one, but I guess I'll start like, are you interested in it? Like, I don't want to ask if you don't know a lot about no, it. No, definitely. I, I can't, I'm not encyclopedic about it. Uh, but I do very much enjoy F1, um, in the United States, depending on the TV deals and contracts and the technology of the time, um, you may not be able to, you know, be as in tune with what's happening on a week to week basis. But I, I certainly am a fan of it, yeah. I guess, so when I think of a stereotype in my mind of a NASCAR fan, you know, I guess I think middle-aged, maybe drunk. <laughs> or But then if I think about F1, I'm also like, if I think about a fan, I'm like middle-aged and also probably drunk. But uh, the European ones, I mean, maybe it's just because F1's more popular in Europe, but they seem classier. Like, I think a middle-aged drunk in Italy... I'm like, oh, they're classier than a middle-aged drunk in the U.S. But <laughs> I guess what are some of the more like cultural and social differences between these types of racing? Sure. So, you know, NASCAR still has most of its fans in. It's not even so much a geographical issue nowadays, but it is certainly the uh, more rural, less certainly not a Democrat green party socialist kind of situation. 
um, you know, very, very red state. Let's let's say um, it's uni- you know, it's universal, but it's certainly it's you know, there's a reason why Donald Trump showed up at the, at the Daytona 500, and <laughs> yeah. Barack Obama never did. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. basically all there is to it in that regard. Um, Formula One in this country, in the United States, has a much younger demo. Oops, excuse me, has a much younger demographic. Uh, the fans, at least from what I have seen. Certainly younger, certainly more female. Why that is, I'm not entirely sure, but it's it, it's actually it's a bit promising to see the the F1 fans that we have in this country. And very, once you get over the 30 year old mark, very very few people are going to have an appreciation of current F1. They may know what it is, of course, and and have a somewhat understanding of what's happening, but the actual fans are going to be skewing much much younger. Whereas in Europe. And everywhere else in the world that likes F1, it's it really has got more of a soccer vibe to it in the fact that it's it's a it's a festival atmosphere for a lot of the fans. Uh, people who are Ferrari fans are Ferrari fans for life. It's not necessarily about who's driving the car. You're more about you know, if you're if you're Italian, you're all about what Ferrari is doing. You've got the red shirts on. You're waving the flags. You're wearing the big clown wigs. Uh, yeah, that that kind of thing. Um, and there, I'm sure there's there's other fans different than that, but that's sort of the atmosphere you get. Like when you watch a a, a fully packed you know, European Grand Prix, is is definitely that kind of vibe to it. Yeah. So why do you think uh, it's taking um, time for F1 to catch on in the U.S.? So mainly is because the television coverage is so either hard to get or just not in the business of making new fans. Uh, I love what it's doing currently uh, in the United States. If you're to watch F1, you basically have to watch ESPN and it's not an ESPN coverage. It is the simulcast of the British broadcast. So it's British announcers, British, you know, analysts. It's all very much not American. And as an old school fan who, knows what's going on and doesn't need to be taught anything. I love it. It's perfect because they're not dumbing down the product. You're getting the the people on hand discussing it in its best way possible. But that's very not good for people who are not understanding the sport. If it's someone who's interested in it and wants to learn more, they're going to probably struggle with that that British broadcast. What when we did have it in America, it was in my opinion half-assed. Uh, because they would never send people to the country that, like, say, let's say the race of this week was in Australia, because they're in a new, you know, they're in a new country for every race. Basically, they're not sending all but one person to that country. Yeah, you know, they don't send any cameras themselves. They send one guy who's kind of a roving reporter, but the people watching and commentating on the television are just watching what you're watching and they're just kind of offering their opinion basically like they're on the couch next to you they don't really have that much insider information other than you know maybe some communication with with what's going on down in australia and it just there's something lost to that it's like you're not really trying to win over any new fans by kind of just showing me the television coverage and trying to tell me what you're what you're seeing 
It reminds me a lot of, I mean, I haven't watched New Japan Pro Wrestling in a, a couple of years now, but for a while I was really into it, and they had a big issue of, like, for a while they were doing English commentary for, like, their one big show a year, and then they started doing it for, like, some pay-per-views, but then, like, some of the stuff, even if you're in the U.S., you still have to listen to Japanese commentary, um, and yeah, so, but, and it's, like, I would watch a lot of the stuff with Japanese commentary because I wouldn't really be listening and I wouldn't really need commentary to get it. But, uh, yeah, it was, it it was an extremely inaccessible wave of trying to like penetrate the U S market. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a great example of that. One question I have about NASCAR is how did it develop exactly? Because in my mind, what I picture happening is it kind of has similar origins to something like a demolition derby where they were like racing cars at a fair and they're like, let's make this a sport. But um, what do you think about the origins? Sure. So, I mean, racing in itself has always occurred. There's always been, you know, people on the street. I've got a car. You've got a car. Let's race and see what happens. As far as NASCAR stock car style racing is concerned, the way the history is described is it's derived from moonshining, uh, from bootlegging liquor in the southeast uh, in the 30s and 40s. I, I assume um, they would drive souped-up cars so they can outrun the cops and/or carry the liquor and all that stuff they would show off their cars to each other and basically the moonshiners would challenge each other to races. And one thing led to another, they would start organizing races and then they'd start charging admission at a little dirt track or something like that. And they would host a, a race of moonshiners and that's what NASCAR came to be. Um, obviously when you are having a bunch of criminals work together to try to put on a show, there's going to be some crooked people involved and there's going to be, you know, people that, try to collect as much gate money as possible from fans and drivers. And then when the race starts, they're out the door kind of thing. There's certainly a lot of wild West criminal activity in its lore. So NASCAR came along to basically be a sanctioning body that would be as non crooked as possible. That would, you know, try to make as many safety rules as you can to keep people from dying, keep making it as accessible as possible to drivers and fans and it just kind of then became a business from there. Yeah, so it kind of has its origins in like Smokey and the Bandit style, like smuggling. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that is interesting though, because, you know, I guess I kind of assumed that NASCAR was like, where I'm trying, I'm trying. So does NASCAR operate more like, a franchisee or a corporation does that make sense yeah i get what you're saying um they're more of a corporation really the best term for them is a dictatorship um they for the most part they own the field they own the ball they own everything and they tell you basically they allow you the opportunity to own a car that is to their specifications allow you to conduct in their races under their very strict rules. And then they will give you prize money for your performance in said, in said race. Um, it's, you know, certainly less of a dictatorship now than it was, but it's, it's only been successful by being a complete 
dictatorship. Um, any problems that come up, they're immediately put down by the almighty ruler of NASCAR. So it's you know certain other racing divisions have come up to try to challenge it. None have ever really successfully worked. Uh, there's enough local style racing and semi-pro and even professional racing that NASCAR can afford to be in the place that they are because they're not ever really going to be a monopoly. You can't monopolize motor racing, at least in this country. Um, so they, they're allowed to really be the biggest hard asses that they can be, knowing that if they kick somebody out or somebody's kind of ostracized from the NASCAR community, there's still plenty of racing for them to go out and do. So they don't have to really play by the the nice guy rules for that reason. Yeah. So who are some of the NASCAR's competitors, I guess, besides Formula One, but I don't really think of them as a direct competitor. Maybe they are, but uh, who are some of their biggest competitors? Sure. So, and to be quite honest, there are very few competitors. It, it just comes down as far as the talent is concerned, like, you know, having the best race car drivers that you can, they really don't have much competition in that regard. Um, they welcome in any type of race car driver, someone that might have been doing a Formula One type thing. They may bring them in, and that'll help them sell tickets and, and that kind of thing. Um, but as far as competition, it really just comes down to what other people might watch. There's IndyCar racing. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the, the Indianapolis 500 yeah, I was under the impression that was part of NASCAR, though. No, no, the Indy 500, they're open-wheel cars that are spiritually similar to F1. They're open-wheel cars with a lot of high technology. They race their own smaller series of vehicle. They, they race an IndyCar series. There's some crossover with drivers here and there, but they're really kind of in their own world. That, that's kind of what mm. I mean by they're not really being much competition. There's there's other things for the American race fan to watch and give money to, but as far as you know, what's going to be more appointment television during a NASCAR race, it really just comes down to what other sporting events they're on that might be, you know, they know enough not to run a race during the Super Bowl, uh, you know, for the NFL, that kind of thing. But <laughs> yeah. As, as, as far as in their own little universe, they really aren't facing any competition. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess I just always heard about the Indianapolis 500, but always kind of assumed that it was just a NASCAR thing. Yeah, it, it, that's IndyCar racing's kind of interesting because they. The Indy 500 was just a race that started in 1911 just as like a, you know, a big money race to see how fast race cars could really go. And really, they just built a racing series eventually out of that. Um, they basically said, oh, we've got these kind of cars that we make for the Indy 500. Well, why don't we run a few other races? It's not, as, not quite as simple as that, but it's basically it all sprouted off of that kind of thing. All roads went from Indianapolis to whatever they do now. Um, whereas NASCAR has always kind of been a you know, megalomania, a lot of races going on over the course of an entire year. Basically, if you sign up for NASCAR, that's your life. <laughs> yeah, and so it sounds like I'm assuming NASCAR owns all of the tracks they race on themselves then? Most of them. they own. I think they own about half of them. Um, they're all the tracks in, in 
the highest level of NASCAR are owned by three entities and the third entity only owns two of the tracks. So basically half the tracks are owned by NASCAR and half the tracks are owned by a company NASCAR is super duper in bed with. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess I think that about answers most of my questions about uh, NASCAR. But um, unless you have anything more, um, where do you see the future of auto racing in general? Sure. I mean, I, I see NASCAR. It, we're really on the cusp of a new golden age. That uh, might be a little more optimistic than would be appropriate, but we're shedding a lot of dead weight. A lot of the NASCAR died with Dale people are finally leaving us alone to some degree. There's still a lot of animosity about it, but for the most part, they are kind of leaving the rest of us alone. And we're making a lot, I say we in the most fucked up way, so forgive me when I say that, I'm not part of NASCAR, <laughs> but we as the community, <laughs> they're making a lot of strides to become a better fan experience. Um, I'm sure you heard last year uh, they finally banned the Confederate flag from on track yeah. thing. And that, that sounds so simple in everyday life, but that was a huge milestone in fan experience. And it's, it's certainly not perfect, but those kind of things are leading us to bigger and better things. There's some definite roadblocks to get through why we're struggling this much with having an African-American driver I don't really know, but we're still, we're getting through that. There's a lot more multiculturalism. Uh, we're being much more welcoming to younger female fans um, and just younger fans in general. That They're getting an appreciation for the sport that's not tainted by you know 30 years of old thinking. They're coming into NASCAR now and are actually, you know, the, the Zoomers are going to save us all, I hope. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I would like to briefly uh, wrap up the show, um, kind of taking a hard right turn. Do you have any more thoughts? Uh, no, I, I think NASCAR into 9-11 is a perfect segue. <laughs> yeah, so I will say I, I don't want to talk about this too long because if you, if you really follow the thread, then it kind of gets to places that I don't really want to get to right now. Certainly. Certainly. But, uh, um, I was very intrigued by this because I've always kind of, this character's always lingered in my mind, so I'll just get to it. So there's a guy named Anwar Al-Awlaki. He was a American Yemeni per person, a U.S. citizen by the U.S.'s own reporting or claims. Um, and so he was the first U.S. citizen killed by a drone in Yemen. And he's the first because his teenage son was killed by a drone like two weeks later. Um, yeah, he was a Yemeni American, like I said, and he was a recruiter for Al Qaeda. That is all stuff we knew ahead of time. Have you heard about this guy? Yes. Yeah, I'm somewhat aware of you know, being whatever, whatever I am now, 33 years old. I have pretty concrete memories of the, of the W. Bush years. And I do remember this sort of thing coming up, and especially it coming up when he was killed during the Obama administration. 
So the reason I wanted to bring it up, though, is there was a report from a couple weeks ago by Alex Rubenstein. I actually hadn't heard of him, but um, basically it's leak. He had some documents. I don't think they were leaked. I think the Yemeni government actually just straight up released them. But yeah, I think we went, yeah, Yemeni intelligence basically did a. A mic drop of it. <laughs> yeah, and what they concluded is that in 2001... And here's another thing. I'm reading from this article. I looked all over. I couldn't figure out what part of 2001. Because I feel like it makes a huge difference if it was before or after Yeah, the beginning of 2001 is a lot different than the end of 2001. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so basically what we're saying is we're not sure when the phone call was made. Yeah, this was shortly before 9-11 or right after. But basically... Anwar al-Awlaki, he was detained by the Yemeni government in 2001. He was sentenced to either life in prison or death. I, I'm not sure. Um, but basically, he would not be released by the Yemeni government. And the CIA director at the time, uh, George... George Tenet, he called the then president of Yemen and said, you have our guy. I'll do it in a direct quote. He said, quote, this is my person. This is my problem. This is my issue. This man must be released. Uh, and then he adds, I've talked to everybody in my government. I told them I was going to make this call. Um, <laughs> oh, here. So it says, even in the wake of 9-11 attacks months later. So presumably this was in the summer right before 9-11. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I gave it a, as good a research as I could find. What's interesting is how this is not being talked about very much. Uh, it's certainly not catching any waves in the mainstream media, which I thought was intriguing. Whether not maybe you know 9/11 subjects or and Al Qaeda things are just not interesting anymore. I, I really thought this would have been talked about more. Um, but some takeaways that I learned was that, first of all, did Brother George never no, never actually mentioned Anwar by name, did he? No, um, he did not. But it, he was the person, the Yemeni government understood who he meant, released him, and that satisfied the CIA. So presumably it was. Yeah, I, I could certainly see how that would be. It just, it seems odd that... And I call him Brother George because that's what W called him. But uh, <laughs> it, it just seems odd that it never was. You know, there's certainly no. I guess that's when you're in the CIA. I guess you don't mention names. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was interesting. The the other thing that was interesting is we're we're putting a lot of trust into Yemeni intelligence. Um, kind True. of this whole thing is is being we're, we're relying on them to tell the truth, which. Certainly could be. I don't. I personally don't have a real good understanding of United States Yemeni relations. Um, from what I understand, it is strained at best. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to put it mildly. So there certainly would need to be a grain of salt when you would to, to take a piece of information that was provided solely from Yemen without any confirmation that I've that particularly heard. Um, now yeah. whether whether Anwar really was a CIA property or 
whatever the word would be for that. Uh, not agent, but what is it? Uh, like an asset? As? Asset, that would thank you. Um, to say he was an asset, you know, certainly not not in the outside the realm of possibility. Uh, the CIA has had plenty of bad assets <laughs> that have gone on to, to do bad things. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'm totally with you. I am. I do have skepticism about about it, but there are some details that uh, that are also kind of co- corroborated. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that to be like, oh, you should trust this. I'm just this right. is uh, for for years and years. I've thought about this guy because the more you learn about him, the more weird it seems. And so. I don't really even have any theory about w- what's going on with him. I'm just intrigued. But um, the thing that interests me is that he was fl- he flew back to the U.S. in 2002. He he was flying in- on Saudi Airlines um, with a Saudi agent um, and returning to the U.S. And when he got back, he uh, met with a radical cleric um, who is later arrested for recruiting um people for the taliban and i just think it's a little strange that i mean he you know at this time he was definitely known of having ties to the taliban and al-qaeda he was a well-known recruiter so i'm not sure why he would have been flying to the u.s with a saudi agent with him no, it's it's just as intriguing as it is weird because yeah, you'd think if someone who did a nine eleven wouldn't be flying into this country in you know in two thousand two. Uh, there there are so many layers to this, and I, I don't. You know, how do you feel about? Yeah, you know, he, he certainly is statistically relevant for being the first person killed by a drone strike, but. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know there's a lot of controversy as far as you know Obama's use of drone strikes during that administration. What are your thoughts on that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, the the really interesting part of it to me is because of this information, they have actually people have looked into it a little bit and can't really find a an American birth certificate for Anwar Al Alwaki. And I remember saying something that the first the first time he was documented even being in the U.S. was like in the 80s or early 90s, something like that. And I guess the point of that, it would be that he, maybe he wasn't actually a U.S. citizen or he was granted his citizenship um, as part of his being some type of asset, um, which is strange because... I mean, the U.S. government didn't really hide the fact that uh, they killed ostensibly a U.S. citizen. I mean, it wasn't all over CNN, but it wasn't hush-hush either. And so it just kind of surprises me that they would rather supposedly drone a U.S. citizen than potentially disclose that he wasn't actually a U.S. citizen. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I could imagine some you know someone in the decision making process of that saying well if he did 911 like it's not as simple as that of course but you know it doesn't matter what he did or what you know who he is whether he's a citizen or whatever if he did 911 in any sort of way if we drove him to death 
the American people would understand it. Do you think there was any of that kind of thinking involved? I mean, I so I do think I'm sure there's where people around who said stuff like that, um, because that is how I imagine a Fed to think and talk. But I, I don't think I don't think that's the actual motivation. More like the okay. justification. Yeah, yeah, I, that that would make the most sense, definitely, as as far as the justification angle. Yeah, there, there's also kind of like another detail about this is like the U.S. did have a pretty good idea where Osama bin Laden was for a while. And the reason they didn't um, pursue him for so long is because he was in Pakistan with ties to Pakistani intelligence. And right. uh, so he was basically a liaison between the Taliban and Pakistani intelligence, who was then feeding all that information to the U.S. So I, I guess there there's always more. I, I guess there's always more to the picture, but I just don't know what that more is. No, and I guess that's all the point is to keep people, people like us, from ever really knowing the more. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I have to say on this is I do. There is a book I read. It's called "The Management of Savagery," I believe. It's by Max Blumenthal, and uh, it was a really interesting book in terms of like he gets really uh, granular about the different CIA and defense department assets that the U S had and what they were doing. And, um, it ends up making, I mean, it's a really complex book. It talks about like hundreds of people with very, um, hard to remember Arab names, but it gets very granular in details. That actually is very intriguing. I think I'm about to take a look at that. But other than that, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but uh, <laughs> this is something that really tickles the curious part of my brain. I, I fully agree, and I really wish there would be some more investigation into that, or at least some more. Uh, there's there's too many missing pieces for me not to be interested. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that's a, about a good time to wrap up. Uh, anything you want to say or plug before I let you go? Oh, sure. Just the just the normal things. Yeah. You know, uh, my writings can be most found at tben.com. So that's t e h b e n dot com. And my Twitter, which I'm there far too many hours of the day, is as I'm at mj burrows. Uh, yeah, come come yell at me. Come tell me I, I've got 9-11 and NASCAR all wrong, and we'll have a good conversation. <laughs> yes, and for the listener, you can follow me personally on Twitter, at ChristianIsCool, is is spelled I-Z. You can follow the show at Society underscore show. You can also write into the podcast at SocietyShowPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you want to leave a voicemail, you can call 971 238 4138. Matt, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great time. You know, the last few days have been tough, have been crazy. I, I've gone out of the house and I get, you know, sneers and I get finger pointing and and, and and I don't do good with sneers and snickers. And then I actually uh, went to the to the dog park 
with my dog and people that usually, you know, say hello and even play with my dog, they don't want to play, play with my dog, Wheezy. And then, you know, I, I, I went to my coffee shop and they said, uh, not today, Cupcake. And it's weird. It's like, why are you, why are you calling me Cupcake? And then I get online and social media and, you know, I know I put it out there, but, uh, you know, people online uh, have, have been so, so cruel and, and mean.